0: From WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, welcome. I'm Warren O'Destillette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. The Baha'i Perspective is a radio program presenting biographical interviews of people who have chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Blair Nichols. Blair grew up in Detroit in the projects. She described herself as living in the ghetto, but was not of the ghetto. Blair describes how the Baha'i faith broadened her horizon beyond Detroit. I started the interview by asking Blair to describe where she grew up.
1: I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, and I was born in 1950. So I grew up in Detroit when Detroit was <laughs> the, what, number one capital, murder capital of the world.
0: Yeah, things it have was, changed.
1: Um, uh, all the mo- the Motor City, you know, it had its reputation. So that's where I grew up. And for me, I lived in um, on 12th Street you know, the same 12th Street when they had the ghetto. They had the riots in the 60s and all that, and they then they had to rebuild it, and they tore down and changed it and all that. So I lived all up and down that street when I was a little girl, and I remember once I asked my mother, I said, why do we move so much? Because we moved every year, once a year, all the time. She said, I was running from blight. <laughs> The city was falling down around my ears, you know, and I remember once we came home, we said, Mom, we saw a man fall out the window. No, oh my. He was on the top of the, you know, the, we lived in apartment buildings. Yeah. He said, oh, Lord, next thing I know, we were moving. I love to hear the fire trucks go by, and it was lively. I guess that's what you could say. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Is that what life was like through elementary school, junior high and high school?
1: Well, for me, I I had 3 brothers and I remember that we didn't really associate. I didn't associate with anybody except my family. And we lived in the ghetto, you know, we lived in the middle of a lot of um people. I used to say They're all from the South, you know. I can hardly understand the talk. And I always felt separate, you know, from everybody else. And so for me it was, I I guess, lonesome because I didn't associate with everybody. I just, we just, only people I played with was my cousins and my brothers. And I stayed at home, stayed in the house, you know. And I guess that was the way I stayed away from the way things were, you know noisy. I just didn't ever think. I I didn't want to be like everybody else, so I just didn't associate so much. You know, I went to school by myself. (laughs) While I was at school, I stayed by myself. When I came home, I stayed in the house, see? So, um, I stayed away from all the stuff that was going on around me.
0: So why do you think it was that you lived your life like that?
1: Because I didn't feel like everybody else. I didn't We didn't look like everybody else, you know, my brothers and I we were real pretty kids, really, really cute, and I had real long hair and it was straight kind of in the wavy and real pretty and the kids were always saying you got pretty hair and people were always saying you got pretty hair and they're always asking us, Are you Indian, you know, and stuff like that? We weren't. But I found out later that my father was he was uh, part black and part Puerto Rican and part maybe some Indian in there, you know. And so I have an extraordinary mother. My mother was really smart, and she would read stories to us at night. We had a library, you know, and she encouraged us to do well in school, and we did, I always like to tell a story about my mother where, when we were little, she would we would be in a room together, and she would say, now I'm going to shut this door, and you kids stay in here with me. Don't go out. And I'm going to say my prayers. And don't go out this door, you know, in the rest of the house. And so it would be three of us at that point. Eventually it was four, but at that point it was three. And I remember we would climb all over my mother, like she was a, elephant (laughs) or a horse and we'd laugh and play and hop and skip and jump and my mother would not move you know she would be on her knees saying her prayers and she would not move and say stop kids leave me alone be quiet nothing like that then when she was finished she would sit up and she'd say oh thank you thank you for not going out of the room and then she would read us a story you know something like Fairy tales from Oscar Wilde. So we were reading Oscar Wilde fairy tales, you know, Mm -hmm. and the other kids, I don't know what they were doing, but I didn't feel like them, you know. So Mm -hmm. I used to say, I live in the ghetto, but I'm not of the ghetto.
0: So that's why I just felt separate. What was religious life like growing up?
1: Well, since we moved every year, I went to a different church every year. And my mother would let us go to everybody's church. My friends would invite me to church all the time, so I went to church. But I really just, I didn't go from religion to religion. I just went from church to church. And I would come home and say, Ma, what about this? What do you think of this? And she'd always filter everything I learned. Finally, one day she said, I don't care what church you go to. As long as you know that you are Episcopalian and you're going to stay there, can't join anybody's church. You can go to anybody's church you want to until you're old enough to make a choice. And I remember once I said, "Mom, do you think everybody's going to go to hell? And she said, no. I think God sent somebody for everybody and that they'll all find their way to God somehow. It's That's nice. what she always told me. So we, church was a place to go to have fun and, Enjoy my friends. So I I enjoyed religion. And When I was six, they told me that, my Sunday school teacher told me, Christ would return, you have to look for him, and find your purpose. Find your purpose in life. I was at six. Mm -hmm. So I was always looking for the return of Christ. Always. Whenever I go somewhere, I always ask about all that. Until I was about 18. And then when I was 18, I was at Episcopalian church, and somebody hurt my feelings. Because, you know, when you're 18, you're easily hurt anyway. And I wouldn't go back to church. (laughs) (laughs) And I decided I'll just stay at home. You know, I won't go to church. And I didn't, and I started listening to the religion, whatever I wanted off the radio. I didn't want to socialize with people because it seemed like they looked down on me. Because at all the different churches, as I got older, people dressed really nice, you know. And I didn't really because, you know, my mother was a sole supporter and we didn't have a lot of money and we didn't put money in clothes. And I always had what I needed. I always had new clothes, you know, for school and shoes. And we weren't raggedy or anything like that, but we weren't real uppity-uppity for church. just wear plain clothes and then as you get older people look at you and look down on you and i felt it i grew out of church i liked god and i liked prayers because my mother had taught me you know about prayer she talked about prayer a lot but i didn't like church anymore
0: so what did you do after high school
1: well i just listened to the radio and then um One day, when I was 23 or 22 or 21, somewhere in there, I heard him say on the radio that beware of of committing the most great sin. And I said, oh, I know what that is. That's suicide because I've been through all these different churches. And the man on the radio said, no, I bet you're saying you're thinking it's suicide, but it's not suicide. And so I'm listening like, oh, my goodness, this man is in my living room. So then I said, well, what is it? And he said, you're asking me what it is. <laughs> I said, oh, my goodness, he's talking to me. You know. And so then he said, the most great sin is to deny the Holy Spirit when it comes to you. And he went on to say how when Christ came, they called him Beelzebub. So he said, this was denying the that was the most great sin. And then he told him, beware, you know, that you're, You should be aware of what you're doing. You know, you should uh, stop, blah, blah, blah. And so I thought, oh, my goodness, I don't ever want to do that. I'll have to be careful. So at some point, I don't know if it was a year or whatever happened, but when uh, one of my really good friends that I had grown up with since I was 11, uh, he started uh, investigating the Baha'i faith with a guy at work. He was around 20. I was 22 when I heard about the Faith, so he must have been 24. And he was asking me had I ever heard of it. and, that, and I kind of wanted to pretend I knew a lot about everything, so I said, oh, yeah, I heard of it. They meet at the YMCA. They have meetings at the YMCA. He said, yeah, I see you know a lot about it. <laughs> <laughs> so he wouldn't talk to me about it. He was reading Thief in the Night.
0: Blair, why don't you explain to folks what the book Thief in the Night is?
1: Oh, Thief in the Night, it's a book by Bill Sears that he was a journalist and he was investigating the truth of the Baha'i faith. You know, his wife was a Baha'i. and He went around for himself investigating the proofs of what the Baha'i faith was about and actually going to Israel and all the different places and things and trying to see what the Baha'i faith Really, the Baha'i faith, and from that verse in the Bible that said that Christ would return like a thief in the night. So it's like a, a mystery. The Missing Millennium is the other title for the book, like a detective story. So anyway, this uh friend of mine is also my boyfriend, and we're also, I'm like 20, 22, I guess and we're living together. He's been in the Air Force, and we grew up together as kids. And so, and uh, he knew all my cousins, so he was kind of in the inner circle, so that's how he was able to connect with me. So he reads this book for about six months. I watch him read it. He won't share it with me because, he, um, he, you know, I've already told him I don't know anything about it. And then in January, there's a, a holiday that the Baha'is have uh, helped it's not a Baha'i Holy Day, but it's World Religion Day.
0: Yeah, it's a from, it's U.N.-sponsored day that the Baha'is participate with.
1: Exactly. And so they celebrate this day in Detroit, and he decides he's going to go. This is the first Baha'i meeting he ever went to. And at the same time, I'm supposed to be moving, you know, to a new apartment. <laughs> but he can't help me because he's going to this program, you know. Well, he leaves around 10 in the morning. And I don't see him again till midnight. Well, you can imagine Baha'i programs are that way. He went to the program. it was from twelve till about three afterwards. Everybody was invited to go to this um fellow's home, who was black, who was a psychiatrist or psychologist, something like that. But anyway, he had a really nice home, and he was impressed with all that, you know, and everybody went over to his home and then they all stayed till about midnight you know, laughing and enjoying each other and asking questions and all this. And one thing led to another, and they had probably what was like a fireside, and he's asking questions. He's been reading this book for about six months. And so one thing leads to another, and he declares, which is where people say, yes, you know, they believe that Baha'u'llah is from God and that they want to be a Baha'i. So he comes home around midnight, and I say, well, where have you been, you know? (laughs) You know, and he says, well, I declared, you know, I said, well, I declare, what did you declare, (laughs) you know, and so he said he was a Baha'i, and I said, well, I only have one question, do these Baha'is, they believe in Christ, you know, and he says, oh, yes, you know, and he's telling me all this stuff, so I felt, you know, like, overwhelmed with emotion, I went to the next room and just cried and cried, and the reason was is because I had prayed oh, God, help me to lead this man to religion. He really needs it. And I realized in that moment, he found it. Without me, he didn't really need me to get him there. And that that was such a vain prayer, you know. But after that, you know, I decided, well, I'll investigate it. And I did. So that was in January of 73. And then uh, by March of 73, I decided this really was what I wanted. And had read a lot of books and went to firesides from January to March. The fellow that I was telling you about that taught me the faith, he and I had a little boy together before I heard of the faith. And actually his name was Sharif, is still Sharif, and his name means honor. And so he actually was named Sharif before we became Baha'is. Everybody thought I named him Baha'i Sharif because we were Baha'is, but we weren't Baha'is then. And his name is Sharif Amir. But anyway, I always wanted him to be a king. And Sharif doesn't mean king; it means honorable. But Amir means king. But all his life, I told him, I want you to be noble and honorable first, and a king, like king-like, second. And that um, kind of helped shape his life too.
0: Okay, well, let me ask you a question about your boyfriend. You said you had been praying that he'd be led on a religious path, but it sounded like he was already on one. The fact that he was associating with Baha'is and going to this UN World Peace Day thing. Well, he
1: actually worked with a fellow. He worked for Ford Motor Company, and he worked in the engineering department. He worked with a a fellow who was a Baha'i, was from California, and who actually didn't participate very much in the Baha'i community, but he taught, he would tell people, he was always sharing the message with people, you know. And he was smart, and he was open-minded to that extent. But he really wasn't on a path, a religious path, and that's the reason I was praying for him. But I guess he was, but I didn't realize it. You know, I was really surprised.
0: Now, I remember your comment that your mother said, you can go to any church you want, but you're always going to be an Episcopalian. What was her reaction to you becoming a Baha'i?
1: Well, my mother was always ahead of her time, and she was really smart, too. And her reaction was, well, I'll look into it. I'll see what it is. And her reaction really was to protect me. Because this the backdrop on all this, remember in the 60s when they had the Moonies mm-hmm. and that and young people were going off into, you know, beatniks and... It's going off into different kinds of things, you know, and so she hers was protection. She wanted to find out, was this, what was this? She never heard of the Baha'i faith, you know, a religion from Persia. So she wanted to investigate it thoroughly and completely, <laughs> so she did. And I told her, and at the same time, my mother was studying to be a nurse. She had gone back to school, and like I said, she was real smart. And she had started college college at Wayne State University when we were kids. Like I remember when we were six or seven or eight, something like that, she would go to school. But she had to drop out because, you know, she had three kids and it just was too much school, work, kids. Somehow the conversation came up and my mother said she really wanted to be a nurse and she'd like to go back to school. So she went through school for five years and at 47 she graduated and she was a nurse and... Eventually, my mother worked twenty years as a nurse. Her response was to study it really closely, but at the same time, she was going to nursing school, which is really strenuous, you know. And she had us teenagers. Well, we weren't we were teenagers, so when I became a Baha'i, I was twenty three then, and but she was still in nursing school, and she didn't grad. You know, she, like I said, she when she graduated. They had decided that all nurses should have a bachelor's degree, so she went on ahead and got the bachelor's degree too. And that's why it took five years at that time. So, um she was a lot was going on around her, but she still studied it and she started going to classes at the Baha'i Center. They had um study classes for people and she started going to that in between studying, you know, to be a nurse and all that. So I came in the faith in March and I talked to her on the phone about it and I told her I said, Oh my, you're gonna love this religion. They have really good ideas about women. And my mother had always said that Christianity was good, but personally she felt like it allowed men to put their feet on a woman's neck and keep her down. So when she heard the ideals in the Baha'i Faith that a a man and a woman like the wings of a bird, she was encouraged greatly. <laughs> And when I told her that it taught progressive revelation, that, you know, all the religions had a different teacher and a manifestation and they created a, a culture, you know, around that manifestation and that everybody had a way to God, well, that's what she had taught me all my life. And I told her, I said, Ma, you know you've been a Baha'i a long time. Everything you taught me is true. You know, so really and truly she had prepared me, you know, to be a Baha'i. So I became a Baha'i first. And I helped her to learn, and she became a Baha'i. So I, she was the mother that prepared me, and then I was her spiritual mother. <laughs> mm, <yes. laughs> so that was kind of interesting how it worked. So she became a Baha'i in October, and the way that happened was is that some people in the class asked her, "Well, Beverly, are you a Baha'i? You know?" And she says, "Oh, I don't know." She said, "Do you have to do something embarrassing, you know, to be a Baha'i, like?" you know, jump in the water, you know, how when you get baptized, some people have you to go to the river and things like that. And she said, do you have to do anything embarrassing like that? And see, I thought the same thing, and I was kind of, you know, reticent about. And so I didn't want to do anything embarrassing neither, you know, to do it. So they assured her, no, no, all you do is, if you recognize Baha'u'llah, then you declare and if you accept his laws, then, of course, you're, and you're willing to um, bring your life in accordance with the Baha'i teachings. She says, oh, yes, I could do that, and I love that, and I love the teachings, and I love the laws and everything. You know, so, yes, I'm a Baha'i. So I became a Baha'i March 3rd, and my mother became a Baha'i sometime in October of the same year, 1973. So that was her response.
0: Blair, what was going on in your life before you ran into the Baha'i faith? And then what what went on with your life after you became a Baha'i? And how did you becoming a Baha'i impacted what you did with your life after you became a Baha'i?
1: Well, I think what was going on in my life before I became a Baha'i was maturation. You know, growing up, like I said, I was 23, 22. I was 23 when I became a Baha'i. It was during the time, you know, of the Black Panthers. It was during the time of revolution, Black Revolution. I had two brothers. and My brothers were actively involved in, not the Panthers, but they were involved in militant activities. But their idea was to try to correct the wrongs in society and try to find justice, you know. They really wanted to find justice, but not with violence. And I didn't want to be involved in any of it, you know. I had friends, I went to college, I was going to Wayne State University, and uh, I hear all the discussions, and I just sat in the middle of all of it, and listened, and I think, you know, what good is it to have a revolution, and tear up society, and all of this, and you know, what's going to happen to the society if you do that, how is it going to be useful that way, so I was open to peaceful ideals, you know, and I realized early, you know, when I became a Baha'i, this is a revolution, it's a spiritual revolution. So I was seeking to find some kind of peace, I guess, some kind of resolution to all of the things that were going on around me, you know, civil rights. And my, there was, you know, the war in Vietnam. And my brothers were adamant they were not going to go. My mother was very supportive, and she said, well, you know, living in Detroit, if you don't want to go, then we'll all go to Canada. And she had a home that she, you know, bought for us, and she was prepared to sell it and take us all to Canada. My mother had always, like I said, I had an extraordinary mother, and she had always supported us all our lives, you know, financially and emotionally and spiritually, and If ever we had any trouble in school, my mother would always go to school with us. She never embarrassed us us or anything. But she was always there. So nobody ever took advantage of us or nobody was unfair to us or anything because they knew my mother would be up there. (laughs) So if we needed anything, she was always there. Whenever my brothers got in trouble with the police, which it seemed like they always did, um, my mother was always at that police station, and she'd let them know, you know, you're not going to railroad my sons anyplace unfairly or unnecessarily or blah, blah, blah. And so we grew up as champions of the underdog, me and my brothers. That's who we thought we were. So that's what it was like. I was a champion of the underdog. <laughs> and, um, you know, we had this mom. Well, the thing about the Vietnam War is that we were all named. Our names were matched. We matched. See, that was my team. I didn't have to be an associate with anybody. I had my own team. And my name was Blair. My brother's next brother's name was Blake. And my next brother's name was Blaine. Well, this is significant because we also had the same initials. Mine was Meredith. The next one was Mandel. And the other one was Martin. And then the fourth one that came along later after I was like 15, his name was Brett, and his middle name was Marlo. She matched him to us. And why this was important is because we had the same initials, right? And I was the oldest. And during the Vietnamese thing, it, it was a draft, and it was a lottery. So the first person they called was me. Well, Blair's like a boy's name. So I had to just write a letter, you know, and let him know I was a girl. And so I didn't have to worry about any of it. But the interesting thing that happened is here we are all, you know, ready to move to Canada, the whole nine yards, and the lottery jumps over my brothers, who are Blake and Blaine, and then it moves on. And by the time it comes back around, of course, the draft is over. And they never had to go to Canada. My mother never had to sell her house. And I used to used to say, I saved all of you because I'm a girl and I'm the oldest. Do I get any credit? And they used to just beat me up, you know, and say, nah, you don't get any credit. Because I never supported their military activities, and I never supported their ideals about not going to war. I said, you should go to war and support our country. And they would say, you should shut up. You know, you don't know anything about what's going on. And, and then I didn't want to walk behind Martin Luther King either. There was all that going on. I didn't understand any of it, you know. And what I didn't know is I was dyslexic mildly. And so I walked around going, what does this mean? What does that mean? What is this? What is that? I could never make heads and tails of anything, you know. So when the Baha'i faith came along and I did study it, it just made so much sense. My mother, it supported everything my mother had said. So when I became a Baha'i, actually, I had this terrible headache for about a year because I was having what you call original thoughts. <laughs> original thoughts, you know, that I never had before. You know, before people tell me what to think or tell me what to do or I would do things to protect myself from what people were telling me what to but I didn't really think for myself really. You know, so after I became why I did a lot of thinking. And it also, you know, when I first came into the faith, it said, Baha'u'llah said, immerse yourself in the ocean of my words. So at that time, like I'm single, I have a little boy. I moved out into my own apartment with my little boy. I'm now with his dad. And I'm reading all these books. And I immerse myself in the ocean of his words. And so my whole life is by my faith. <laughs> and so I had a headache, you know. For a whole year, you know, the Baha'i faith as a, as a whole gave me a huge vision of it all. And I decided, well, once I became a Baha'i, I am going to do this, I'm going to do that. And so I did immerse myself in the ocean of his words, and I just became immersed in activity and all that. And so at first, my um, my family, you know, watching, thought I was a fanatic. And my little boy's dad, he also thought I was a fanatic. And I thought, what's a fanatic anyway? You know, I said, the world wasn't offering me anything. I was ready to, you know, at that point, with all of those different changes and things going on and none of it making a whole lot of sense to me, I was at the verge of suicide. You know, I felt like there's nothing that makes any sense to me. I don't want to participate in this world. And at that point, that's when the Baha'i faith came into my life. So it offered me... Solutions, you know it offered me power too, because I could see I saw the faith as very powerful, and I was black, I was a woman, and I felt like I can do anything now, you know <laughs> I have real power and and so that's how my response to the faith was. this was power, and now I don't know if that was very good, but that's how I felt mm-hmm. empowered. And I felt like I needed to put my time into my little boy and help him grow up. And I was trying to go to college at that time, too. I was in college just before I heard by faith. You know, when you're in college, you learn a lot of things. And I think the most contrary thing I learned that really hurt my feelings was that Abraham Lincoln didn't really free the slaves because he loved us. (laughs) He freed the slaves because it helped win the war. And then I found out that he really wasn't who they said he was or at least that's what they said, but I've come to find out. Abraham Lincoln truly was Abraham Lincoln. He was wonderful. I always thought he was. But for a few years, my first years in college, I was disillusioned even by Abraham Lincoln. So I guess that's what you could say. I was disillusioned, you know. And then when I became a Baha'i, I was like, here's a whole new world. This is the day of God. And then all the, you know, wonderful stories about the Bobbies and the 20,000 that were martyred. I imagined myself a Bobby, and like I was born in 1950, and I always said, I was born a 100 years too late. If I were a Bobby, I would have been one of them, you know. So that's who I thought I was. I was a Bobby. (laughs) The Baha'is in Detroit were helping to help me, you know, stay on the right path, and they encouraged me to stay home, get a skill, you know, finish school, raise my little boy. And so I did. I continued in college, worked. I worked at um, Job Corps. Doing what? Detroit Job Corps. I was a residential advisor. I had a friend who was a Baha'i who hired a few of the Baha'is to work as his staff, you know, as as a residential advisors. What that meant was we helped supervise their living area, make sure they cleaned up their rooms and try to guide them, you know, to um, character, have some character, be nice to kids. And Job Corps at the time was to help kids to get their GED so they could go into the military or go on to college or something like that. It was to give them a chance in life. So it was interesting. It was the first time I, I came across a group of kids, really, really ghetto kids who um, at that point that was the the – beginning of, you know, how people, the kids would uh, call each other Red Dog and Joe Dog and now everybody is something dogs <laughs> <laughs> And this would have been in 1973, four, five. That was so alien to me, you know, I said they scared me. The kids that I was watching scared me to death. <laughs> and uh, the director, he says, what are you afraid of? You know, he was a Baha'i and I said, I don't know, they call each other dogs, you know, what do you think? <laughs> <And> so <laughs> So eventually I did end up moving to a reservation, Indian Reservation, and this is how I met Joanne Marion, is that um she and her friends Edwin and Robert Edwin and Dotsie Roberts went on a trip where she had a sister who was getting married in Maine, and she did, she was living on the on a reservation in South Dakota. So she decided, you know, had uh, arranged to be involved in going from one big city to another between South Dakota and, and Maine where her sister was getting married and talked to the heist about the reservation and see if she could encourage some of them to pioneer there, you know. So... I was in Detroit at the time, and I was working at the Job Corps, and I wasn't able to go because my job was at night. So I encouraged everybody, please go. These people are coming in a blizzard to talk about the reservations, and please support them. you know. And I begged my mother to please go, even though she was working and she was still in nursing school. So the only people that turned up that night, which was during the week, was my mother and another lady that I had begged and begged to go because I couldn't go. I figured somebody's got to go, you know, and I was a zealot, you know, so um, they went and then my mother was just really, you know, enamored of, of Joanne and Edwin and Dossie. So my mother felt the spirit and she decided she was moving to South Dakota.
0: Can you explain to folks what a pioneer is?
1: It's a person who gives up their home and and where they live to go do the same thing somewhere else to further the Baha'i faith. And if you're a teacher or you're a nurse or whatever, you go somewhere else and be a teacher and a nurse. And, and then as a result, you're able to share the faith with people in another place. You know, you continue to work and do what you're supposed to. So it's sort of like a missionary. Only you are responsible for taking care of yourself and you still... Do the same things you always did in your Baha'i community. I was really surprised. I said, I just sent you to listen. <laughs> and so then when my when I became a Baha'i, my mother, you know, was trying to protect me to make sure what I was doing was real and appropriate. So when she decided she wanted to go pioneering, I decided I have to protect her and I'm gonna go with her and make sure she's not doing anything crazy, you know. So we mobilized our first family vacation, and so my older brother, he rented a car, and we all went in this car, and so he had his son, I had my son, Ma had her youngest son, and we were all crammed into this little car, and we went to South Dakota to check it out and see if this was a place Ma could live in, and uh, we went to Pier first, that was where everyone and Dossie were from, and then we went on to one of the reservations and. I just fell completely in love with this Indian community and these Indian people, and my mother went through hell. <laughs> she has beautiful skin, and she was sitting on the beach, and the wind—the wind was the worst in South Dakota has ever in 30 years that it had been in 30 years, and it just whipped, you know, this sand whipped on her face and just scratched it, and she just looked horrible, like somebody took a broom and swept her face, you know, and then. Everything that could happen happened to my mother, and she was just completely convinced. There's no way I want to move here, <laughs> and there was no way I wanted to go home. You know, I just fell in love. This was this was where I wanted to be, and of course we had to go home. We were only there a week, and it was so funny. There's so many funny stories about that because we didn't we'd never been on a vacation as a family. We couldn't afford that, and so here we are. We're all on this vacation. And we get there, and we put, we're going to camp to save money. So we've got like a week's worth of groceries. We've got all these people. We've got camping equipment and no real space to breathe or sit. (laughs) We get to the pier, and we unload half of the stuff there so we can travel, you know, and it's, it's getting hot, you know, as you get more into South Dakota. So it just was funny, and we get to the reservation, and there's this, wind, you know, that they haven't had, you know, South Dakota's windy anyway, and um, it blows our tent, tears it all up, we don't know how to camp, we don't know how to set up a tent, but anyway, it was so interesting, so we go back to Detroit, Mom's convinced, no, I'm not going there, I can't, you know, stand that life, and I'm like, I can't breathe, you know, it's like, I can't stay here anymore, I gotta go there, I wanna go there, we get back in July, and I'm, writing letters back, you know, and they're encouraging me to come back. So by, I think it was, like, maybe um, the following March, by then, I'm saying, I'm going back to visit. I'm just going to go visit. And my job had, you know, come to, like, an end, and I was on unemployment. I said, it's a good time to go. So me and my son, we uh, got a car to drive. They had cars that you could drive, you know, being in Detroit, Folks would buy a car in Detroit and then have it driven out to them from Detroit, and that was cheaper than uh, buying it in their own city somehow. So I did that. I drove a little car, brand-new car, for $50. They gave me $50, and believe it or not, that paid for gas, and it paid for um, a night in a hotel to get to Pierce, South Dakota. And when I asked them, did they have any of these away cars, he's going to Pierce, South Dakota... He said, "Um, we haven't had a car going that way for about four or five years, but I'll see. And sure enough, they had one. And he says, yeah, we do, but it's a stick shift. Do you drive a stick shift? Oh, sure. And, of course, I did not. And so I had a weekend for one of the Baha'i friends to teach me how to drive a stick shift. He says, well, you'll be all right. You'll make it. Well, (laughs) going through Chicago traffic with a stick shift is not exactly that you don't know how to drive, really. I had a friend go over there with me, and I drove the car, and they could see that I could drive it good enough. And then we went over to another street, and then she got in the car and drove us home. And then she helped me drive it a few more days so that, you know, I could really kind of learn how to drive it. So we drove that little car, and we got to Pier. And of course, I prayed the whole way. And we, uh, me and my little boy, and we got over there. And the plan was, I was going for two weeks to visit, and I had enough money to just, you know, drive this car, get there. Then I was going to take a bus back home. And before I left, I had an apartment, and I packed up all my things and I put them in my mother's garage. And I says, when I come back, I'll get an apartment for seventy-five dollars. And then I'll, you know, we'll carry on from there. Well, life was so exciting on the reservation, I just couldn't leave. You know, I couldn't go back. And so my roommate, she said, her name was um, Karen, she says, Blair, why don't you just stay? And Joanne Marion says, yes, why don't you just stay? Why would you go back? What would you do different than you're doing here, you know? And I said, well, uh," because, see, my whole life had been just my family. And being in the Baha'i faith had been a challenge because I never had associated with white people until I was a Baha'i, you know. And to be around other people other than my family was like, we just didn't do that, you know. We just associated with our family. So now, as a Baha'i, I associated with all these other families in Detroit. But to go and leave my family was like, what? You want me to stay here? It's one thing to visit, but to leave my family and everything that I know, you know, in Detroit, I don't think I can do that. And immediately I went into trauma, you know, like I have asthma. I had asthma. I don't have it now, but I had it then real bad and it got real bad. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't think again. I couldn't hardly take care of my little boy. And my roommate was helping me. He was like, three at that time, or it was three and a half, going on four. And what happened was, you know, I just went into a quandary. How can I leave my family, leave my mother, leave my everybody I know? So I thought about it, and I prayed about it, and I prayed about it. And something in my head went click, and it was like things just got worse. I couldn't, you know, I had to go to the doctor. They gave me medicine that still couldn't breathe. And then I had to try to find a way to relax, so I was in a hot tub of water, and I was just praying and praying and praying for relief, you know. And then my mind said, Blair, all you really have to do is make choice. It doesn't matter what you choose. If you decide to go back to Detroit, back to your family and the world that you know, we will love you and assist you. If you decide to stay here and join this Baha'i community and help them, We will help you and assist you and love you. Everything will be okay. You know, I went into, like, it just just was really traumatic. Then I said, oh, okay. So I prayed and prayed and prayed. And then my mind said, you know, I'm a Bobby. (laughs) (laughs) This is my chance, you know, to be a Bobby. (laughs) (laughs) So I decided, I'm staying, you know, I'm going to stay and be a pioneer. And it will be okay. God will love me and everything will be all right. And then something went click inside my head, and then I was able to relax. And through this whole thing, I couldn't sleep. I didn't sleep, and when I didn't sleep, I didn't relax. When I didn't relax, the asthma got worse and worse and worse. So um, it clicked. I I, got out of this hot tub, and I I went to sleep for the first time in about a week and a half. And I rested, and then I told everybody I'm going to stay, and I stayed. My mother, who had always been very supportive and everything, she wrote and she said she was disappointed and she wished we really didn't do that, but whatever she could do to help us, she would. So it was a break, you know, and it was wonderful, though. (laughs) And so it was very exciting. And so in a way, I had found my, you know, revolution. It was a spiritual revolution and... um. My family didn't support me in this either. They were like, why do you have to do what you're doing over there? Why can't you stay home? You know, why aren't you in Detroit? It was good I had this connection with God, that God would love me and support Mm -hmm. me, because the only person that loved me for doing that was my mother. I remember a man came by with a bunch of um, squash, and he dropped them at our door. Another time, a man came by with bags and burlap bags of corn. And they just dropped it off at every house, you know. Well, this one guy that dropped the um, squash off, nobody wanted the squash. They liked the corn. And so I, you know, collected it (laughs) from everybody. And we made pies, squash pies. And so I was doing some little classes, you know, with junior youth and and a few teenagers. And they'd come over and visit. And we'd have, you know, Baha'i classes and learn songs and prayers and things like that. And I wanted to, you know, they'd help me make squash pie, and I'd go around and sell the pie to um, workers during their lunch, you know, because I heard of a pioneer who lived in South America, and when their money ran out, they had construction workers. And so they would make pie, American apple pie, and they'd buy it and buy it and buy it in American food because they were lonesome, you know, and uh, missed the American food made by Americans. And so he was uh, um, a African-American. He was married to one of the South American ladies. So he was cooking American, and I remember hearing those stories. So I thought, okay, I'll make pie. And people would say, the workers would say, what is this? This is so good. Is it sweet potato? Mm Mm-hmm. You know, is that what you want? (laughs) They'd say, well, what is it? Is it pumpkin? Uh, mm, is that what you like? You know. <laughs> and then, if I was pushed, I'd say it's squash. <laughs> and they say, hmm, I don't know if I like squash pie. You like sweet potato? It tastes like sweet potato. You know, or you like um, whatever. So we sold that briefly because you know how long's it going to last. But I had everybody squash. <laughs> anyway, um, but then you know. I got into a program. It was a program to help develop families, single families, and help them to finish their education and all that. So I got one of those programs that would train me to be a manager in like a store. So I, I was living in South Dakota then for about a year. And during that time, my mother graduated from nursing school at 47. And... um. I didn't hadn't graduated from college, but I went to this training program, and that was in Montana. So me and Sharif, we left and we went to Montana for a year in that program, and it was self-supporting. You know, they gave you a stipend and all that. So I was young, twenty-four. We didn't need much, but they had a lot of Indian reservations in Montana. And so, for the Baha'is, I worked with them, and I got to you know it was near Fort Peck, and they had uh Baha'i communities among the Indian communities there and help um visit the native friends and that and make friends and But when that program was over in a year, they had to move me somewhere within those seven states you know South Dakota, Montana, Nebraska, and all that so I asked them to move me to Macy, Nebraska, which happened to be a Native American Baha'i community where they had had the first All-Indian Spiritual Assembly, which Spiritual Assemblies, uh, we don't have ministers, so we have local Spiritual Assemblies. And this community had had an All-Indian Local Spiritual Assembly in 1944, I think it was. So my school moved me there. It cost $500, that program. I finished the program where I, you know, was trained to be a manager. <laughs> and I went to Macy, Nebraska. And then when I got there, this was a very, 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 very small community. It was the closest town to it. It was 81 miles away, which would have been Omaha, Omaha City. And it was with the Omaha uh, Indian tribe and it was on this small reservation. There's only about 3,000 Omaha Indians in the whole world. And then the next closest town was Sioux City, Iowa, which was about 30 miles away, and it wasn't that big. So really, I was never able to get a job as a manager. <laughs> it wasn't close enough. But I ended up getting a job in Macy. I worked at the. At a nursing home there, and I got a job as a, a nurse assistant. A nurse aide is what they call them. They have another name for them now, but then they called them nurse aide. And so I got that job, and I lived there with my son, and we got um very little house. It was, you know, you might call it a shack. <laughs> and she just called, charged me $50, and it didn't have indoor plumbing. It did have electricity, and it had an outhouse and all that. And so <laughs> we thought we were in heaven, Me and my little boy. I did anyway. We stayed there for about a year and then we were able to get into um they had a housing program there. We were able to get in the housing program and then we got you know a modern house with indoor plumbing and all that good stuff. Yeah. And we ended up living on that reservation for 17 years, my son and my mother. Yeah. My mother eventually moved there. I got there in 1979. My mother got there in 1980, and uh, my younger brother came with her. He's still there on that reservation. He married a woman, an Indian woman, and they had children, and they're still there right now. My little boy grew up there, and he went to school there, and he became a cheerleader there. That's significant because in this tribe they have men's talk and women's talk, and there was a real separation between men and women. That was the way he found a place in the community because he didn't have any relatives there, and everybody was relatives were connected, and it was real con- uh, a real system, you know, of, of community and that. And I always sat on the outside of the community, and I was fine to be out on the outside. I liked that, you know, I didn't want to be Indian. And my son, he kind of had an interesting childhood, I suppose, because. He was the only black kid. We were the only black family actually there for many years. He went through a lot of prejudice with the kids. To this day, they, you know, he's, he's one of them, so to speak, and one of the families adopted him, too, and that helped a lot because that gave him relatives.
0: <laughs> you keep referring to the Babis, and you would aspire to be a Babi. For those who aren't familiar with the history of the Baha'i faith, can you explain who are the Babis?
1: You know, before Baha'u'llah, there was a messenger that came called the Bab who came to prepare people to receive Baha'u'llah. But before Baha'u'llah declared himself publicly, there were the people who followed the Bab, and they were called Babis. And the Bab had told them to purify their lives. His ministry only lasted nine years and then he uh, suffered persecution, persecution, and then eventually was martyred with a firing squad of 750 men. And um, they tried to obliterate what he had done, his religion, and all that. And so they had, they killed over 20,000 of his followers because they wouldn't say that they didn't believe in what the Bob had taught. That was the beginnings of the Baha'i faith, and actually the Prophet, founder Baha'u'llah, was himself a Babi and suffered persecution for being a Babi. So the Babis were the first followers of the Baha'i faith, and they were the first uh, ones to believe in the new teachings that this was the day of God, and they suffered the consequences of that.
0: And so that inspired you?
1: Yes, it did. I think so. I was very much inspired by what they did and and how they completely gave themselves to this new religion and um, tried to promote it in in the way that they they felt they had to. You know, give their all. And I felt that way too. You know, you have to give your all. Recently, you know, there's a book written that tells you all about their life and the history and all that. It's called the Dawnbreakers and so I just read that book we eventually my mother and I ended up going to other places we went to Suriname in South America and I read that book for the first time Dawnbreakers which tells all about the Bobbies and I just felt full of fire (laughs) and this year here in, in Tennessee I did that again I read that book from cover to cover and so I felt like a Bobby again you know and Felt like I was on fire again, you know. And I live in the Bible Belt, and we find a lot of people they're open to religion and they're open to the oneness of mankind, and they're open to uh, mankind uniting as one human family. And and, but they're not open to the return of Christ, but they are open to those concepts. So that's what we teach. And uh, my mother and I go out on a regular basis at least two or three times a week, and try to go find the Bobbies, (laughs) (laughs) the lovers of God that are out there, waiting to hear the message of Baha'u'llah. Now, I'm also a teacher now. I finally did graduate from college when I was 41. My mother graduated from nurse school when she was 47, and that encouraged me. Well, if she can do it, I can do it too. So I did. So here in Tennessee, I'm a um, certified Tennessee teacher. And I substitute teach because I'm older now. You know, I'm 60, and it's um, difficult to get hired in a new place. Like, they have many minority teachers here, but they're young. They're like 20, you know, 25, 30. But to come in as a new teacher at 60, they don't really, and then you're from the north, and it's very obvious I'm from the north. I have an accent. Everybody says I have an exit, so I haven't been able to find a contract, but I work as a self-suit teacher, and that's how I make a living here. My mother is retired, and she has Social Security.
0: Well, Blair, thank you so much for sharing your story with me.
1: You're very welcome. Uh,
0: I hope you enjoyed that interview with Blair Nichols, someone who grew up in the projects, and Detroit and family was her life. And then the Baha'i Faith broadened her view to be world-embracing. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
2: There's been a lot of things that I'm holding in my chest. I hear a lot of people saying life is a test. But I confess, I feel hopeless and I feel a lot of pain. I hear a lot of words that are spoken in vain But I'm not the same as the rest of a voice From within speaks out to say You can't take my heart or take my soul And try as you may, I will not be controlled It's been too long that I have not known The power that rests in the pen that I hold uh, And no, I'm not a toy, no, I'm not a puppet No, I'm not a soldier that you can deploy I am but a word, love That means that I'm tough and I can't be destroyed What? I ain't gonna take a mess full of economic and political unrest they're playing with their lives like a game of chess now they got us all feeling neurotic and stress uh. the world is in misery the people are lost obsessed with themselves fighting for what victory the battle is within some soul mystery yeah you know you can't take my soul and try as you may I will not be controlled it's been too long that i have not known the power that rests in the pen that i hold uh, and no i'm not a toy no i'm not a puppet no i'm not a soldier that you can deploy i am but a word love that means that i'm tough and i can't be destroyed what, what are you gonna take Let them win. No, I will never give in. Don't matter if it's cold or it's hot. I'm to stand in this spot because it's time to begin. Begin a new search in the hopes that I find. And take back this life that is mine. Because I don't want to waste no more time. I got to spread the fuse, reflect the words divine. Yeah. Play that game, you gotta be out of your mind to think that I would give in. It's time for us to rise. You know, we gotta make that change. The search is deep inside, cause the revolution is within.
0: This is WXOJLP Northampton, one oh three point three FM, your Valley Free Radio station. Streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.